0: Welcome to Casting Hope, the sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. I want to invite you to find your place in James. James chapter 1 verse 5 this morning. This fall we're walking through the letter of James. And last week we learned that James is a few things. James is an ancient sermon letter. Written by James the half brother of Jesus. Sent to brand new Christians. Who were in exile. Because of their new faith in Christ. And this is a sermon to them and by God's grace to us. And like all sermons, this has a flow to it. And within the first 11 verses of James, James introduces the themes of trials and then flows to the theme of wisdom and then flows to the theme of material wealth and all that is tied up into that and can be. And then these three topics are revisited again inside of chapter one. And then these three topics are are explored with depth and they're unpacked by James in the rest of the letter. And Last week, we talked about the first theme, trials, verses two through four. And we saw that there's typically two different ways that Christians can approach trials or hardship when they come. We talked about the temptation to silence it, to ignore it, and then the temptation to soften it or to downplay it. And I would add a third if I were preaching on that passage uh, this Sunday. Spiral. Sometimes the hardships just make us spiral down into despair. But the Apostle James, do you remember, gave us another option. We are able to, because of Jesus, to subvert hardship when it comes by placing it in God's greater story. What is to subvert? Subvert is basically to undermine a great power. And we use the momentum of suffering in a way against it, like stepping out of the way of a rushing tackle. It's momentum is its downfall in God's story. Because at the center of God's story is the cross. Where the momentum of evil and hardship was used against it by Jesus himself. How do we do this? We don't have the questions Or I'm sorry, we don't have the answers to the questions that suffering brings us, but we can subvert it. How do we do that? Well, we place it, if you remember, our hardship in God's story. And the way we do that is, as to borrow a phrase, by looking through suffering, not to suffering. So in God's story, we can look through our suffering and we can look in two directions. We can look in the past to the cross and we can look to the future And what he promises to do. In the past, we see through our suffering the cross, where we see the suffering of Jesus, which does two things when we see it. The cross of Jesus acknowledges the horror in existence of suffering and hardship in this fallen world. There's no downplaying with the cross, there's no denying with the cross. Does another thing, though, when we look through our suffering to the cross, we see what Jesus defeating sin and death itself once and for all suffering and evil. In other words, does not have the final word. And we see that when we look through our suffering to the cross. We don't have all the answers, but we see that and that keeps us in the game. This subverts our suffering. But we can also look through our suffering event to the future. We are given glimpses in the scriptures of a future, a a promise from God himself into a real future without sin and evil. And more than that, where everything that has been distorted and twisted because of sin and evil is renewed resurrection. Not just our bodies, but the world that God made. What scripture calls a new heaven and new earth where every tear will be wiped away. What is that? That is an acknowledgement of pain. That is an acknowledgement of suffering. There's no downplaying even when you look to the future. We will talk more about trials when James brings them up again. But this week we encounter his sermon's second big theme. Wisdom. Wisdom. Quick word on biblical wisdom, because when I say wisdom, I think we all think different things in the Bible. Wisdom is much more than just knowing facts or knowing sort of how to make a complex decision. Wisdom is so much richer than that. In the Old Testament, wisdom, I would say, is the relationally whole life. There's a wholeness or a healthiness to our relationship with God. There's a wholeness or a healthiness to our relationship with others. With ourselves even and with the world. That's wisdom. A relationally whole life. And James picks up on this theme and uses it a lot in his sermon. Uh, It's been said that what Peter calls hope. And those lights are motion detected. That means we're not moving very much as a church. And that's okay. Um, (laughs) <laughs> so that's fine. At least at I'm least moving. Um, it's been said that what Peter calls hope. And Paul calls faith. And John calls life. James calls wisdom. In fact, many careful readers of James thinks that when James says wisdom. It is basically the same thing as if you look down at verse four. Of perfect and complete. The wise person is perfect and complete. Or mature and complete. To be mature, according to James, is to be wise. To be wise, according to James, is to be mature. To grow in wisdom, in other words, is to grow in likeness to Jesus, who is wisdom. That's a much richer understanding of what wisdom is. Jesus walking wisdom. So, growing likeness to him, we grow in maturity and in perfection, says James. So, what does James have to say to us about this rich theme? Wisdom. Well, let's read. You can follow along. I'll read out loud. We'll start at verse 5 and end our reading at verse 8. This is God's Word. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given. him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so, Lord, would you empower this time by your spirit? Open our eyes to see not just truth and true things, but to see beauty and ultimately Jesus. We encounter him in your word this morning. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, a few years ago, my family was all set to go on a road trip of sorts vacation. But on our way out, I noticed that one of our tires had some major like some major issues, like concerning enough that we stopped at Discount Tire on Stringtown Road on our way out of town. And this meant that we spent the first three hours of our vacation at Discount Tire, which is not what you know any of us had in mind. Here's what I discovered about car tires. I kind of knew this already. You don't notice problems at low speeds. Take nails for an example. You will notice, I'm sorry, you will not notice a nail in your car tire so long as you're cruising around your neighborhood. That's because they're not really tested, the tires. But get on the highway with a nail in the tire, and it's a whole different picture, isn't it? You will largely uh, and likely end up on the side of the road probably calling AAA or your friend. For me, the past 18 months plus, I've been like driving on the highway with a nail that has always been there in my life, in my tire. And about three months into it, enough things happened, macro and micro, in my life that I had to pull over. In other words, for most of my life, I drove around town with nails in my tires, but I never knew it. These nails are ways that I don't trust God with my life. Ways that I relate to others that are not sustainable or ultimately loving. But I didn't notice these nails. Why? Because my life in many ways was like a stroll through my neighborhood. Slow and predictable. The past 18 months changed all that. And I wonder if it changed that for you. Hardship has a way of doing that. It has a way of doing that. It takes, in other words, a snowstorm for us to notice all the cracks in our doors and windows, doesn't it? (laughs) Can I get an amen on that? It takes a rainstorm to notice where the clogs are in your gutters. Hardship has a way of exposing what is already there. What James calls in verse 5, our lack. Our lack. In James 4, James just told us that God is writing your story, as we just mentioned, and it ends ultimately with no lack in Jesus, in the new heavens and new earth, in our resurrection bodies, looking like Jesus, in our love, sinless. That future day, that glorious day, loving God and neighbor with freedom and joy. And remember, James's catchword for this future picture that we are moving towards by the Spirit. What is that word again? Wisdom. The relationally whole life. Love God, love neighbor, Jesus said. When you're doing that in wholeness, you are wise. And then verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, assuming that you do. that's That's an assuming phrase. And this comes right after trials. Is James saying something? I think he is. Hardship has a way of exposing our lack. It just does. Pastor James knows this. It's as if James is saying, Hey, are, are, do any of you out there, are you coming out of this painful season realizing that maybe your faith and trust in God's goodness and presence was not as robust as you thought it was? Or perhaps your marriage was not as strong and robust as you thought it was? Or your friendship? Do any of you feel like you're at the end of your rope without spiritual, emotional, and even physical energy to love others well? Or to summon a prayer even to God? See, we all have nails in our tires. Trials just expose them. And so what do we do? Well, verses five through eight, as I said, is James, it's his pastoral response. James assumes that trials will reveal, reveal nails, and so he points Christ's followers, I think, the two bedrock realities that are important for us to see. Specifically, he paints to a picture of two things. A giving father and an asking child. I want you to remember this image. In fact, I think this passage has so many parallels to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7. It's worth visiting this passage right now. I'll just read aloud. 7 verse 7. You can follow along if you like. Jesus says, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and Ask him. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. It's as if James is preaching a sermon on Matthew 7, 7, his half brother, his own half brother to this church. And he's inviting this church in their lack, in their need, like a child to ask, to enter into a posture of asking like a child to a what? To a giving father. We give God our lack prayers, we'll call them. That's what James chapter 1, verse 5 is getting after. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. Let's just take a look at these two images again. The giving father and the asking child. Because first, James points to a picture of the giving father. And we see this in verse 5. I encourage you to take a look because here in this verse, God is described in our translation as God who gives. Let him ask God who gives. This is literally, if you're hearing this in Greek or reading this in Greek, the giving God. Isn't that amazing? Just stop for a minute. Isn't that amazing? That our God is the giving God. God. Not a stingy God, not a calculating God, not a not a a God who who sort of uh, reserves things, keeps things back, but a giving God. For God so loves, He what He gives, he gives. Throughout the entire Bible, starting at really the act of creation, God is revealed to us as a giving God. He doesn't need any creation. That's a false view of God. God as Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is perfectly, perfectly happy. And He gives. 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 We serve a God who gives. That's who He is. How does God give in this passage? Well, two ways. Simply, and I'll say it shamelessly. So first, simply. What does verse 5 say? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives What? Generously. 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 The word translated here is haplas, which means singly or simply. And in our translation, at least the one I'm using, uh, the word generous is used because when somebody gives haplos, when somebody gives simply or singly, they tend to give a lot. That's why. They tend to be generous. Why? Because the giver... And their giving is simple. It's single, single hearted. There's nothing, in other words, competing with the desire or the capacity to give. That's simple giving. And that's who God is. He's not complicated or nuanced or reserved when it comes to giving wisdom to our lack. He's not hiding wisdom in a sort of just-in-case jar for other potential uses. He is a single-hearted giver. In fact, this word is in exact contrast with the double-minded asker in verse 8. Do you see it? That word, as we will see, is actually double-souled. To be more accurate, double-souled. Double-souled. It's someone who's not single-hearted or single-souled in their ask. It's when they have a divided loyalty in their ask. Well, when it comes to giving... God is not like us. Amen? That's a good thing. God is not like us when it comes to giving. God is not double-souled. He's not double-hearted. He is single-souled. He is simple. When God gives wisdom in our lack, He simply gives. And then He gives shamelessly. Or as our passage puts it, without reproach. Now, reproach is a word that I use sometimes, but I don't really understand, so I, I looked it up in a dictionary. Uh, To reproach someone is to what? It's to address someone with criticism. When you disapprove of them. I've been to kids' soccer games, a lot of them, where the opposing coach is a flowing faucet of reproach. (laughs) Do you know what I'm talking about? Every single thing they say on the sideline is a criticism of their players. They're not coaching, they're reproaching what are you? I'm a kid's soccer reproach, I'm not a coach. <laughs> And have you ever noticed how kids react to reproach on the soccer field? Heads are down. They don't look at the coach. Heads are down. In that moment, there's shame. Kurt Thompson, who, by the way, is coming to Ohio State's campus. Kurt Thompson is a noted uh, psychiatrist, a believer, pastor's heart, Um, is coming and is going to be addressing the topic of how do we pursue emotional, spiritual health post-pandemic. I would encourage you to come. more details on that. But he has shown that our brains actually get neurologically malformed when we are repetitively, repetitively shamed. But God does not respond to our lack or our lack of prayers By shaming us, God does not, He he does not say, You're asking for what? (laughs) Haven't we gone over this? (laughs) Have you had your quiet time, buddy? No. He does not receive your ask with reproach. He's a perfect father. He receives your lack prayers without reproach. I had a teacher who was infamous for saying on the first day of class something to the effect you've all heard it said that there's no such thing as a dumb question well I'm here to tell you they were lying there is such a thing as a dumb question and if you ask a dumb question in my class I will tell you so it's like his shtick first day of school guess what happened very few students asked questions they did not want to admit their lack of understanding their need For clarity, why? Their teacher, they were afraid, would reproach them in their asking. And they were afraid. And that's the opposite of what is revealed about God here. In fact, some have pointed out that James seems to address just about every excuse that we can come up with to not ask God. wisdom. We say, I'm not good enough. God says, I give to to whom? Take a look. Who gives generously to all? Not his favorites or those who did particularly well this past week. We say, "God, God is too busy for me. And God says, I am not a generic deity. I am the God that gives. And by the way, this word gives is a present continuous word. So what what is being revealed about God here is that God is constantly giving. So yeah, God is busy. He's busy giving to you all the time. So when we say, God, you're too busy for me. God simply responds with James chapter 1 verse 5. I'm happily busy giving to you. We say I should be more mature in this. I should be more mature. I should should look and love more like Jesus. I'll ask later when when I get my act together, and God says, I give without reproach. What's holding you back? From giving God your lack prayers. God is a giving father. Bring your lack to him. Which brings us really to the second picture here. So if first James points us to the giving father. Second we see James pointing us to an asking child. And that's really what the next few verses describe. A child. How does a child ask? In, in a couple ways. In faith. And with a single heart. So first a child asks in faith. So look at verse 6. But let him ask. In faith, in faith. Now, faith is a posture of trust in need. Faith, as we often say, uh, faith is empty hands reaching out in desperation and in need. It's a humble acknowledgement, faith is, that only God can do what we need, can only give what we need. It's a humble acknowledgement that we cannot manufacture or wiggle our way out of this. It's a humble need for God. That is faith. It's not a mental checklist of beliefs, although that's involved. It's really a posture of desperation. And in the Bible, over and over again, wisdom is not something we can manufacture. If wisdom is maturity in Christ, according to James, we cannot cannot simply drum that up in the flesh. We try. I love what Miriam Campbell says. She says, quote, this is one lack of. That cannot be made up by human effort. For it is a gift of God and must therefore be asked of Him. And this is why faith is a gift, because left to ourselves, we wouldn't be able to humble ourselves, really, to, to really ask, would we? Where we see that we cannot manufacture what we most desperately need, that takes a gift of, like a miracle, really, of humility to admit it. And that is the gift of faith. So when we ask in faith, we're asking like an infant in a crib asks for help. That's humble faith. And then second we ask with a single heart. So verse 6 continues, but let him ask with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And for that person must suppose that he will not receive anything from the Lord. Why? He's a double-minded or double-souled man, unstable in all his ways. So here at the beginning of verse 6, this phrase, with no doubting, seems like an impossibly high bar all of a sudden. But before we throw our hands up, we need to understand what James means by doubt. Doubt here does not mean intellectual doubt or even wrestling with spiritual issues. For many of you, this has been really the constant companion for you in your journey with God. So are you disqualified to ask of the Lord according to James? No. No. You're more qualified because you know you need and you're lack. James clarifies what he means by doubt in verse 8 with the word double-minded. Literally double-souled. A word James makes up, which is kind of cool. James makes this word up, double-souled. To describe a person whose soul, whose loyalties are divided. The New Living Translation translates this word this way, and I love it. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world. So when we ask, James is saying ask like a child because a child has a simplicity or a single heartedness in their ask. You know, think about the child or the baby in the crib. When the baby cries, it's their parent or nobody, right? The baby knows that. And that's how we're encouraged to pray. It's like, it's God or nobody. God, only you can do this. You know, babies don't give some of their trust or or some of their cry to their mommy. And then the other half to their like future college fund. They've got like all of their weight on one thing. Their rescue. It's one solution. It's all or nothing. And the same is with us. James is saying, bring to God your lack without a plan B. Otherwise, we look like the shoreline according to James. Uh, just imagine a shore of an ocean or a lake that just sort of moves back and forth. You're trusting in this one second. And then you're trusting in this another second. And then you're trusting in this another second. And then you're trusting in this another second. And And then you're trusting in this another second. And you're kind of hedging your bets with all kinds of different things or people or circumstances or schemes in your heart. And James says that makes you unstable and that is a divided heart. Like you're thinking, in case God doesn't come through, at least I've got this to fall back on. But for James, and honestly, Jesus... That's impossible. That's the thing. It's, a, it's kind of a lie that you can sort of rely on multiple sources of salvation or rely on multiple sources of rescue. What did Jesus say? You can only serve one master. And so we may confess sort of a, a single trust in God, but your, as it's been said, functional trust is in whatever else you're depending on. And that just creates instability, according to James. And you're not really asking at that point, is James kind of hard logic here. Think of it this way. Every summer I go to Michigan with my family, and so every year I have an opportunity, like my one opportunity, to ski And one of my favorite things to do is to go around this small lake that uh, we're next to on one ski. But here's the thing, either our boat's not fast enough or I'm not good enough to get up on that one ski. So what do I do? I I get up on two skis. We circle around the lake, and as soon as we kind of get in front of our cottage, I let off one ski like this, And it kind of floats off there, and there is like a moment, there's a moment. Where I better put all my weight on that other ski, or I'm, I'm toast. <laughs> or I'm toast. And then, it, and then it's always that scary moment where you're over here, and then you're back here. That's what James is inviting to us in this passage. A person who has both their feet on one ski are giving God. If we distribute our weight anywhere else, we will have what the Old Testament calls a divided heart, what James calls a double soul, which is ultimately unstable, which is when you fall and hit your face on the hard water, which is what I do often. When we ask God with a double soul, I think a couple things tend to happen. This is just experiential with my own walk with Jesus, and I wonder if you can relate. The first thing is that our prayer life begins to sort of become performative. What do I mean? I just mean we're no longer really pouring out to God. We sort of just do it because we think we should, or there's maybe a, like, I don't know, like, maybe this this is just what I do for my formation. I'm not really crying out to God. Um, And we start to just Form our prayers. And then soon this starts to fade out into no prayer at all. And then our entire life, as James predicts, becomes unstable, like the slalom skier who shifts their weight. But David prays, Unite my heart, O God. And that's what. God's inviting you to this morning. And that's what this passage is all about. I want to say, this is not as it's often sort of been used for, a kind of magic genie Christianity verse. Just summon up the strong faith and you'll get what you want. It's, It's way better than that, what's being described in this passage. Because what's being described in this passage is... Basically, maturity in the place of our lack when it comes to loving God and loving others well. And so this is an invitation, basically a commentary on the prayer, I believe, help my unbelief. Because what's going on when you're praying that prayer? I believe, help my unbelief. What's going on then? You are sing- I, you are single-souled in that moment, aren't you? You really are. You're on one ski. You're saying, I believe, help my unbelief. Where is the direction of your prayer? It's going all to God. And so you may have struggles, you may have doubts, but oh my gosh, they're not the doubts James talking about. And this is a commentary on that posture, what I'll call spiritual simplicity. Spiritual simplicity. The big idea here is to simplify our hearts to settle solely on God when life is confusing and hard. It's the old saying, chase one rabbit. Besides, neuroscience teaches us we can't actually multitask. That was kind of mind-blowing when I read that. That sort of multitasking is actually, like, never true. (laughs) People can't actually do that. Um, We think we can, but we really can't. Uh, We're just really good at, at doing, you know, things all at once but we're not doing it all at once so it's, it's weird we can't do it and the same is with God when you take sort of our lack to God and something else plus something else you're not really asking God remember again what Jesus says is there anyone among you if your child asks for bread will give a stone if the child asks for a fish will give a snake now in those days the fish that is being described looked an awful lot like a snake so that's, that's where that comes from If you've ever wondered that. In other words, the child, you know, could be fooled. If you then, who are evil, don't do that, but give good gifts to your children, Jesus says, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? That's Jesus' words. But what does the world do? What does the world do? When we shift our weight and ask of our job, ask of our relationship with whomever, when we ask of our financial plan or whatever it is that we're tempted to trust in, our health, Our fitness, our beauty, our social mobility, the things we own, what happens? The exact opposite. The world, in other words, asks of us. It's not a giving world like God is. Asks of us, all of ourselves, and then does not give it in return. The world makes promises it does not keep. When we give everything to an idol and we fail that idol, it shames us and belittles us and reproaches us. I remember once a pastor who had said that, you know, if fitness or beauty is your God, when you fail fitness or beauty, it will send you to fitness, beauty, hell. insert whatever it is we're tempted to worship, whatever it is we're tempted to bring our lack to. It doesn't have to be those two things. And when we do that, we recognize all of a sudden, hey, God, you are my everything. I am giving you all of my lack. And when you fail him, what does God do? He forgives you. Actually, he reminds you, you're already forgiven in Christ. And I'm your father. I'm your giving father. He does not repent. This is an invitation to a safe and simple spirituality. Spiritual simplicity. I just want to invite you to practice this. Even now, admit your lack of maturity. There's freedom in that. That's what James wants us to do. If any of you lack wisdom, admit your lack of spiritual maturity. And do so, actually, in Jesus' name. Why? Because only Jesus, as Scripture tells us, is wisdom. He is walking in wisdom. And when we admit our lack of maturity, we are not condemned, but we stand in Jesus' the true wisdom. We are covered in Him. Our lack, according to James, cannot condemn us because we are in Him, Jesus truly wise so we can admit our lack in his presence and in his name I would just encourage you to just do that and then secondly go squarely to God be to the God not the world don't hedge your ask with false trusts. go to our giving God who gives generously to all without reproach? Let's do that now. Lord, we admit our lack. Maybe we're seeing lack that we never knew we had. But we trust that you are in charge of our story. We don't want to waste this acknowledgement, so we bring it to you. We bring our life to you. And now we come to you and you alone. Where we believe, help our unbelief. We want to be single-souled in our pursuit of you. And so like the infant in the crib, we cry out to you now. Because you alone can hear us. we do this in Jesus' name. True wisdom. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.